Kilby Blades is a USA Today best-selling author of romance and women's fiction. Her writing journey began in the mid-90s when she wrote a fanfic based on the show Dawson's Creek. Over the next 20-plus years, she wrote over 15 fanfiction novels and many more short stories. In 2017, Kilby's debut novel, quote-unquote, won multiple honors, and she's since written and published many more, garnering 50 awards along the way. In this episode, we talk with Kilby about her fanfiction roots, feminist romance, the benefits of submitting to awards, and why she ultimately prefers to be traditionally published. To learn more, be sure to listen to today's episode of the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. Help fund the show today and get the support you need to take the next step forward on your own unique journey as a storyteller. Visit patreon.com forward slash Ethan Frackleton. All right, enough with that. On to today's show. Kilby Blades, welcome to the Fearless Storyteller. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you. Um, you come recommended highly. And for <laughs> for people who may not know who you are, what would, would you like to share about yourself? Uh, so I am a USA Today bestselling author of romance and women's fiction. I published my first novel, Snapdragon, in 2017. But I have a long 25-year history of writing fan fiction before that. So I think that's where my real writing career lies. Wow. 25 years writing fan fiction? Yes. And I, you know, strangely, it, it feels strange to say that because I don't feel very old. But mm. if I do the actual math, um, the first novel length fiction that I was writing was uh, was fan fiction in the sort of mid to late 90s. You're not the first guest I've had to have gotten a start writing fan fiction. Um, and so clearly there's, there's this scene, this whole world from that era that, that, I kind of missed out on. <laughs> I don't know. Do you remember what you started what what you started with as far as writing fan fiction goes? I do. So my first fandom was the Dawson's Creek fandom. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that show premiered around like maybe 1995 or 1996 and before I ever thought that I would be a novelist or before I ever thought that I would write full length um Stories, even though I always liked writing, I was always more of a television junkie and more of a movie junkie. Mm. And, um, you know, sometimes the show writers get something wrong or sometimes the show writers, you know, particularly if you're a romance person like I am, sometimes the show, the show writers get the wrong couple together. And what you really want to see is a different couple be together. Or what you really want to see is uh, sort of a Scooby-Doo ending on a scene that happens or um, on a series ending. And for me, fan fiction was always about reimagining something different from what the writers did. And it was always fun to play in that world. And it was always fun to read other people's reinterpretations of what could have happened if the writers had done it differently. Right. And so, like, so this is the mid 90s. How, where were these being shared or where was the community? The internet was young. So there was a, a website that somebody just put up. It was called Capeside Diaries. The um, fictional town that Dawson's Creek is set in was called Capeside. I think it was supposed to be New Englandish. And somebody had, I think it was a GeoCity site. I don't even think that they owned CapesideDiaries.com. It wasn't that sort of thing. And I remember at the time 
the show itself didn't have that much content. Like I, it was kind of a hard time to be a fan because if you were a fan of something, the, the internet was young, you could go to, you know, Netscape navigator and search for something. There wasn't even Google at that time. Mm-hmm. And all you would find was whatever probably cut rate website, the television network had bothered to put up. And I, I remember, you know, going to the Dawson's Creek website repeatedly and it was like two pages and didn't really have much. So that fan community was born of people liking the show and fans sort of created a community around that. And then the fan fiction sprung up from there. That's interesting. And and did you find it just because you were searching on, on your browser and, or how did you hear about it? That had to have been it because the fans that I, the friends that I made through that fandom were not people who lived near me or were people who were not people who I knew in real life. There were people who I met online hmm. So I think it was by virtue of searching for something, anything related to that fandom. That was where I found other fans. Mm. And that was, that was an interesting time on the internet. Cause I think that's a lot of communities legitimately formed up under like just these interests we had and shared interests. I remember that time. So 25 years writing fan fiction, I imagine over the years, your stories or your interest in them may have evolved. Um, like how many, how many stories are we talking about and what did you get into? I probably wrote 15 to 20 stories. I would say about 12 of them were novel length. Some of them were just one shots and other of them, others of them were shorter stories. And you're right. My, my fandoms did evolve. So actually I wrote a couple of stories for Dawson's Creek and met a lot of friends who I ended up meeting in real life, actually. And some of who I'm still in contact with. Mm. Um, but my next fandom after that was the West wing. Um, and the West wing, I, I've always been interested in the romantic relationships. And of course I ended up being a romance writer, but in the West wing, I wrote a lot of Sam and Josh fan fiction because I felt that they were the real couple in the show. And at the time, this is again, sort of late nineties, early two thousands, you probably aren't going to see um, a gay lead character on a major network show. Mm-hmm. And I just remember there was a ton of Sam and Josh fan fiction because a lot of fans really saw the chemistry between them. And I really liked that as well, that exploration of, well, there are things that they're not going to put on TV because the mass market isn't ready for them. Hmm. But what I loved about fan fiction is that fan fiction always seemed to explore those, those themes that were sometimes hinted at, but they were just a little too edgy for um, mainstream markets. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And did it feel edgy to you to be writing it? Or was it just like, hey, come on, give me what I want already? It, it didn't feel edgy to me to write it. It felt to me, they really felt like the natural couple. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, I, I will full disclosure, my, my entire fan fiction career is reinterpreting the pairings <laughs> in certain franchises. Um, so literally every fan fiction I've ever written is like, I, I've, I've taken the couple and that that's um, created by the original creator and broken that couple apart and mm-hmm. um, created a new couple out of who I think the real couple would be. Hmm. And so, like, for those who don't write fan fiction or never have, like, what is it that you got out of the process? That's a lot of lot of work you put out there. Um, I think it was an outlet for my imagination. Um, for example, another fandom that I wrote in was Prison Break. Um, so in prison break, you have a main character who's in prison, like literally every season he's in prison, (laughs) but, Mm -hmm. but he has a, he has a crush and a mutual crush on the prison doctor. Who's a woman. And of course he's in prison. So they can't actually ever like kiss or go out on a date or anything like that. Right. Right. Yeah. So I think there, I think for fans of that couple, there was sort of this pent up like, but I would just, just want to see them. Like, what if they weren't, he wasn't in jail and what if they could actually hang out together? Like, what would a normal relationship be like if, if this isn't what life was like for them? So I think part of it is just taking that flight of fancy on your imagination. But honestly, the other reason why I hung around the fan fiction world for so long is because a lot of the, a lot of the writing was really, really good. Mm-hmm. And people don't know that. People think that fan fiction is sort of like derivative and cut rate, but um, 
I have read most of the great fan fiction that I've read is better than the great, um, you know, for sale on retail platforms literature that I've read. Mm. So it sounds like you, you were really involved both as a reader and a writer um, in, in that process. Absolutely. And I, I credit a lot of my fan fiction career for allowing me to debut as the writer um, that I am now, because, you know, even though I put out my first novel in 2017, I actually understood a lot about readers and about putting my work out there hmm. and about um, setting expectations and having a thick skin for feedback and you know, how to take a lot of things that I think are hard for new authors sometimes. Um, I feel like I really learned a lot of that in the fan fiction world. I see. So there was a, a feedback or a critique kind of culture in that world? Yeah, with fan fiction, a lot of times um, they're being released as serials. So chapter by chapter, like if you go on fanfiction.net and mm -hmm. you kind of have people who are just like waiting for you, when are you going to put out the next chapter? When are you going to put out the next chapter? Um, I think that taught me a lot how to write cliffhangers at the end of each chapter, mm -hmm. which I, I think is a good skill for writing genre fiction as I do now. And also just getting in that flow of hearing feedback was like, oh, oh, I really didn't like what your character did then. And mm. even if I can, even if I understand the character, understand what I was trying to do, just having an awareness, like, oh, you know, other people might see it differently and understanding the implications of that and understanding how readers might feel about my choices. And also just developing that skin for like, you know, some people are going to like it. Some people aren't going to like it so that the stakes didn't feel so high when I put out my first book. Mm. Um, I didn't, you know, I think some authors get to their first book and it feels like, oh, they're putting something out there for the first time. And what if people hate it? <laughs> and it feels like such a value judgment on them. Mm -hmm. Um, but it just wasn't my first time putting my work out there. And I think that, um, I think that's made me more fearless as an author and more resilient. Mm. So the 25 year overnight success debut author right <laughs> <laughs> right it's hard it's overwhelming to to put your first thing out there and sometimes i see authors who have had a really big break for their first novel and I can't imagine that kind of pressure, you know, where you get a really big deal for your first novel, but it's like the first thing you've ever written. Yeah. That sounds really hard to me. Yeah. And you probably don't have a process yet. And yeah. I was just hearing about somebody who, <laughs> who's now making as much as their husband and now they're feeling all the, the, the feelings of like fear and what do I, what happens if I let my readers down with the next thing I write. Right. Did you have any of that experience? Um, I don't know if I've ever felt fearful of letting my readers down. Um, I can't say that I've had that exact sentiment, but I do understand um, the anxiety that comes once you've reached a certain level or once you seem to be in a certain flow. Um, actually the one time I feel like I've been fearful of letting my readers down, uh, I was writing a story, uh, back in 2010, I was writing fan fiction and then I got pregnant <laughs> mm. and I completely lost my mojo. My creativity changed, my energy level changed, um, felt like I couldn't write for a long time going through all of the changes that you go through when you mm -hmm. realize you're about to have your first baby. And then of course, what happens? I end up with a baby. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you know, once you end up with a baby, well, then you really can't do anything. So um, probably now that I think about it, that's one moment where I did, I had a story and I was like, I really don't know whether I can finish the story and when I would finish the story, but people have been waiting for the ending of the story for like a couple of years at this point. Yeah. And I, I hear about other authors who go through similar things, not necessarily a baby, but I mean, gosh, so many people have lost their mojo during the pandemic and like <laughs> exactly. i know people who haven't written in months 
Yeah. You know, who have series they haven't finished and they, they do have that anxiety. So I think I, I connect with it on that level. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And how long did it take you to kind of get back in the saddle and what did it take? I, my personal opinion is that it was hormonal changes. <laughs> um, so I, I think that my hormones went out of whack. And then after, you know, my body came down from, you know, not being pregnant and not having, you know, like breastfeeding hormones. I mean, it was a mm-hmm. good couple of years. Yeah. Um, but I think after I sort of got my body chemistry back, that was when I had a spark of inspiration. Also, I didn't read for a long time. And, you know, a lot of times writers are like, yeah, you just got to be reading all the time. And I don't think I really understood how much me reading actively connected to my motivation for writing. And it absolutely did. So I also started reading. I remember I picked up a Penny Reed audiobook and started reading a Penny Reed series. And actually reading that series was the direct catalyst, even though I was aware and stressed out about the fact that I wasn't writing. Mm-hmm. Reading that series actually it was like, oh, I should be writing again. And I imagine it was a, a good read for you then. Like, it was great. Yeah. Cause <laughs> yeah. I can, I can read books that aren't so great and I don't necessarily get inspired to go do that, you know, versus maybe hearing a song, you know, they really connect to it. It's like, ah, oh, I'm ready to go. Let's go. Let's create. Um, yeah, I don't know why that is. I mean, I, I don't know whether anybody's ever studied it. Do you know, or do you have a theory on why that is? Why, like, why consuming something great is in itself inspiring? Um, yeah, I'm, uh, maybe not a theory, but I, I know that, like, it makes me stop and f- focus, right, just on what I'm receiving and you know, getting some good endorphins from it, I think. And then you know, I'm just ready to to sing you know, or to create. It's like, well, why am I not doing that? It's... Yeah, I'm glad I have that. So something that I've had some anxiety over is I hope that never goes away because the other thing that I hear a lot of sort of authors who have been doing this for a while talk about is how reading becomes different. Mm. Where, you know, if if I'm in the marketplace and it's a competitive marketplace and I'm thinking from a business perspective, you know, what's the next book that I'm going to put out? And I go read the book that everybody's talking about. Well, then I'm comparing. Yeah. And then I'm second guessing. Yeah. Um, and so I, I feel like I, I hear a lot of authors who are sort of just past the career stage that I'm at, probably at the career stage that I'm headed for, hopefully, mm-hmm. um, who say, yeah, like reading can be kind of triggering for me. Yeah. So I definitely have, I definitely have fears about that. Like I don't ever want to reach the point where reading is triggering for me. And I've actually decided this year to read a little bit differently Mm. um, and to, to sort of, to try to hedge against that happening. So what does reading differently look like for you? Well, I, so I have a sort of distraction issue. So sometimes if I'm writing in one subgenre and I go read something in a different subgenre, I'm afraid that it's going to pull me into a different headspace. Like if I'm writing mm-hmm. rom-com, even though I really like a good horror story or a good post-apocalyptic dystopia, mm-hmm. like I don't want to, I don't want to take my brain from light to dark necessarily. Right. Yeah. Um, but I also, I'm conscious of that issue is like, well, if I'm writing something that's, that's like trending right now in the space that I'm writing in, I don't want to like, even a, like a little, a little creep of, of insecurity or questioning to come in. Mm-hmm. So I'm sort of strategically staggering what I'm reading to be not too close and not too far and sort of going on a rotation where I still get to read across a lot of genres, which I wasn't doing last year. Um, and just getting everything that I want to read at a time, that's going to be sort of a healthy time for me to read it. Yeah. Wow. There's, I feel like there's so much to unpack there (laughs) in this last two minutes, like, like a whole panel. (laughs) Yeah, because like 
I know. So I, I did 10 years moonlighting as a songwriter and doing the whole thing that we're doing now, writing books. And, and, and I've kind of set that aside, right? Because you can only really do one thing well. And I listen to less music now because I know if I if I get too inspired, it's going to derail me. I'm going to want to open up my my recording stuff, get my recording stuff set up, and just like go do that, you know. It's, Right. I think derailing is a serious thing for creative people because we, you know, we, we have the gift of inspiration, right? Like we are inspired. That's what makes us creative. Yeah. Yeah. But then you have to channel that inspiration in sometimes into something very specific without getting distracted. And that's yeah. you know, definitely like, Oh, there's the book I'm writing, but then there's the, there's the plot bunny that I just had last night. And it's so good. Yes. <laughs> and so I want to write that, not that. Yeah. And, um, that's, that's a real struggle. And I think the busier I get, I also think about that. Like, how do I put enough on my writing calendar that my writing calendar is full, that I'm publishing regularly, that I'm keeping up with my deadlines and commitments that I'm, that I want to make. But how do I also leave myself just open enough so that when that shiny thing, you know, catches me out of the corner of my eye, I can follow it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, like inspiration's a a tricky thing, right? Because I feel like you can get inspired for the day the next day you've got to come back to your project right so and so you're being careful about what you're taking in during the process of writing a book and what do you do like do you have like that spot in in your writing process where you just kind of hit empty and you know you need to go somewhere to refill your creative well like how do you how do you manage that I do. So I think my natural writing, my natural writing process that works for me is to, is to stop when I'm on empty and to jump around, Mm -hmm. which my brain can do. And I know some people's brains can't. I know some, some people tell me they sit down and they write chapter one, then they write chapter two, then they write chapter three. Um, I tend to, you know, like I can write chapter 25 of a book first Mm. and sort of jump around. And I do do that. Um, for me, I think that's good because the chapters that I'm excited about writing are probably the most exciting chapters anyway. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I, you know, if I stop at the end of chapter three and go decide I'm going to write chapter 11, and then after that, I, you know, skip around more, I come back and realize that I was having trouble writing chapter four because I don't need chapter four. Yeah. Um, so I definitely stop if something's not working. I don't, I don't, you know, stare at my blinking cursor until the words for a specific place come. Mm -hmm. I think one luxury that I haven't had lately is really putting things down for a long time. And I used Mm -hmm. to do that a lot. Like I used to, you know, write act one of a book and then put it down and not pick it up until a year later. Mm -hmm. And, oh, like, wow, this is still good. I definitely want to finish writing this. And then I'll, you know, keep going and not be stuck anymore. I find that I, my publishing. What shifted that you can't do that anymore? My just publishing deadlines. So I think before, you know, so I started out, I I haven't said this yet. So I started out um, as an indie author, Mm -hmm. which I was confident to do because of the fan fiction. You know, I felt like I knew how to write a story and I knew how to, you know, have it edited. And in my professional life, I am a marketer. So I decided that I also would be fine marketing my own stories and not, sort of going the traditional publishing route. The other thing that's worth saying is that a lot of friends from the last fandom that I wrote in, which is Twilight, mm-hmm. became New York Times bestselling authors as indies. Mm-hmm. So I, I just personally knew a lot of people who had become indie authors and had been very successful. So I felt probably overconfident about being an indie author. Mm-hmm. There's a success bias, isn't there, when you're around people who are successful. <laughs> there definitely is. And I, I, I was, I was mostly overconfident, I think because of my um, marketing background and then quickly yeah. the, the first book that I published was an erotic romance. And I quickly got put in advertising jail because it had content for 
I like yeah. I made I made the the mistake of you broke uh, into jail. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that was it was kind of a laughable non-starter from the perspective of that I thought I was going to advertise my books and then I couldn't advertise the books because they had adult content. Um yeah. so huge costly rookie mistake but it was fine. Yeah. Um but when I was indie publishing it was easy for me to sort of decide what I was going to publish next. And now that I'm doing more traditional publishing and I you know I'm writing series for bigger publishers and I owe them a new book every six months and all of those mm-hmm. sorts of things, I'm not really putting anything down for a year anymore. Okay, well, let's talk about that. So I, I've interviewed a lot of indie authors and I'm an indie author myself working on a book deal and that's exciting. But I don't hear a lot about people who have to deliver books every six months for traditional publishing. Is that a romance genre thing or something specific to your niche? I think it has more to do, well, so I don't know outside of romance. It is common to romance if you're writing a series. Um, A lot of romance series are released pretty rapidly. I mean, a lot of indie authors in romance and in genre fiction are doing rapid releases. Mm And I actually teach a course on writing romance. And for uh, authors who are writers not of romance, I teach a course on why it's good to write romantic subplots. And there's all this research about how romance readers are the most voracious readers in the markets, mm-hmm. where they read faster, they buy more books, um, and they are not necessarily loyal to authors. So like, if they start reading through your series and your series either ends or your series and you know you've only gotten to book three and they're going to be six books they're going to just move right on to the next one and you know two months from now when your book four comes out they they've probably read like 60 books between yeah <laughs> and they don't necessarily care about your series anymore so um no pressure <laughs> right so i mean writing writing quickly is something that's happening in romance because romance readers read quickly but my specific goal that I discussed with my agent was I actually, I did want multi-book deals because I found the cycle of pitching mm-hmm. to be a bit burdensome in and of itself. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm happy with my, I'm happy with my three book deals. <laughs> so how do you pitch a series? If you... It can happen a lot of different ways. So the first series that I sold, um, I pitched a manuscript that I had already written to the publisher and the publisher didn't think that the book concept was the right concept for what they were looking for, but they really liked my voice. Mm-hmm. And the publisher said, well, I think you have a great voice and there's a series that I think you could write mm-hmm. that your voice is right for and that the genre that you write in is right for would you be interested in writing a series like X? Mm. And then I said, hmm, okay, let me go back and think about it. So then I came and I, I thought about probably 10 book concepts that could go in that series. And then I talked back, I went back and I spoke to the editor at that publishing house. I said, hey, what do you think of these 10 concepts? And uh, she told me the ones that she liked and the ones she didn't like. And we came up with the concept for the first book. And I wrote an audition chapter. Mm-hmm. And based on previous work that she had seen from me and she had gone back and read one of my books and based on the audition chapter i sold that series on proposal Mm. that's cool and so this was a publisher you had approached with your with your book that was already completed this is a yeah this is a proposal that my agent um that my agent helped me get with a publisher now there i have a completely different series um that I sold where I wrote the first book and the publisher liked the first book. Mm-hmm. And when I, I, I submitted it as a novel with series potential and went alongside the full manuscript to the first book, I sent in two, a two paragraph blurb of what the second and third books could be. Yeah. Yeah. And that went pretty smoothly. Yes, and then got got offers for the entire series. That's great. Well, and so you mentioned having an agent. It sounds like that's an important part of your process. Um, is there anything you'd like to sh- share about that process, like how you 
came across one or found one? How important was that? I actually got my agent through Twitter pitching. So that was, you know, the whole, everything that led to wanting to be traditionally published um, was this sense that, um, you know, I realized that I didn't really want to be spending that much time on marketing for my indie titles Mm -hmm. and realizing also that I could earn new readers in different places by spreading myself around, Mm -hmm. right? That I was bringing something to a publisher by bringing a fan base if a publisher decided to buy one of my books and that a publisher is bringing something to the table by bringing me their fans if I publish with them. So I recognized that I really had a hard time timing the market. So I was writing very, very good books that were not getting the readership that I thought they should be getting. I was selling books, but, you know, not killing it by any stretch of the imagination. But I was also winning a ton of awards for my books. So I've won like more than 50 awards for my books. And I've been in publishing for four years. Hmm. Um, So I recognized that I was writing very good books. Um, But I, I recognized that I was writing very good books that were not necessarily what the market was asking for right at that second. Mm hmm. So I felt that an agent could really help me position my work better because when I was pitching to publishers directly and when I was, you know, entering contests and sometimes I was entering contests for, for unpublished work where you, the goal was to either get an agent or to get a publisher to buy your book. I got a lot of your writing is really, really good. And like, we're not sure that this is the concept that we're looking for. Hmm. And my agent absolutely helped me with that. So, you know, I had a bunch of manuscripts in my pockets or partially written work in my pockets. And and she was like, this is what we can sell right now. This is great. And we can't sell it right now. That's great. And she knew that, which is what I needed her to know. And and she, 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 you know, I've only been with her for six months and she's already sold a bunch of my work. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Like I, I spent a lot of time hustling in the songwriting thing, pitching for film and TV and, you know, if you blind pitch with stuff you already have, it doesn't work very well. <laughs> you have to you have to know what people are looking for. And is that why you were is that why you were submitting to so many contests, or were there other reasons as well? I so the, I draw a distinction between an award and a contest, even though I call them contests. So an award mm-hmm. is for something that you've already written. Mm-hmm. Um, and a contest usually for unpublished is like I was saying, like get noticed by a gatekeeper who might acquire you by virtue of having been a final judge. So there's a lot of that in romance and a lot of that okay. in fiction. It's like the final judges are always big agents and big editors. Gotcha. And your goal is for them to read the first three chapters through a contest. And if you place in the contest, you know, maybe they're going to ask you for a full and that's definitely happened. Or maybe you win a full critique or something like that. Mm. Um, which has happened. Um, But I I think part of my impetus for contests, you know, being a marketer, I was absolutely convinced that winning contests and awards would help me in certain settings. And it has. So for example, BookBub is a huge force uh, in fiction. You know, if you get Mm -hmm. BookBub promotions, you know, you're going to sell 35,000 books in a day. Yeah. If you are an unknown author trying to get book bubs, it's really impossible. I know authors, one of my friends today uh, just read her 20, just released her 25th book. This is her first time ever getting a book book bub. Hmm. So I realized that as an, as an unknown author, I needed as many feathers in my cap as possible. Hmm. And the awards were helpful. Having award wins to get my foot in the door in certain situations was absolutely helpful. Um, also sitting at tables at book signings when nobody knows who you are, but if you have a big shiny foil seal on the front of your book, mm-hmm. I had a lot of people who I knew didn't know who I was because nobody knew who I was coming up to me because I seemed to have a little bit, you know, that little seal is like a little signal. Same thing for um, ads. Like I tested, I tested ads that I did not for my erotic romance. Mm-hmm. So I would show a picture of the book cover with the award seal on it. And I would test it against the same audience without the award seal on it. I would get better click throughs. Interesting. Yeah. So it's one of those things where people thought I was crazy because I was always winning awards. People would be like, why do you do this? And I, I actually had a, an author who's much bigger than me sort of look down her nose at me and be like, you know, 
the awards don't really mean anything. Like they don't mean that you're getting contracts. You know, all they do is like convince people that you can write or like she made that sort of snooty comment to me about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a marketer, I knew that it was that it was translating into money for me in ways that most people didn't mm-hmm. see. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. And I don't think anybody I've talked to has really quite put it that way. Um, and so you write a lot. How many books have you published since 2017? Uh, I think uh, it's been six full-length novels and three novellas and um, probably about five or six short stories. Mm-hmm. So how are you, like, it takes time and maybe process to, like, I imagine to be submitting to awards and contests. And so, like, do you, have you, like, figured out a rhythm for, like, when you're putting effort into that or is it just like a bite every day or every week like how are you how are you making that work for you so i tend to enter contests and awards enough contests and awards to either get me that that big shiny seal that i can put on the cover and mm-hmm. that's going to attract somebody or that's going to provide a little bit more um you know proof of quality for somebody who's never read me. So after I get one shiny seal, then I might stop. Mm. Um, I, my goal is usually to win a couple of awards for each book that I put out just so that I can put that on a retail page if I want to, or put it in a book bub app featured deal application if I want to. Um, but sometimes I end up with more just because award season is award season. So you're kind of applying to all of them at once. I and when when is award season for and is it special specific to romance or just publishing in general the romance specific awards tend to open up and around the spring so romance tends to go by calendar year so right now there are, i've submitted to a number of awards for books published in calendar year 2020 mm-hmm. so usually it's like anywhere from you know, February to April in romance awards for last year's books are open. And then you're kind of finding out how you did over the summer into the early fall. Mm -hmm. Other awards that are um, genre agnostic. So for example, forward magazine does a, does an award. They do the forward indies awards. That's those are on different timing. Um, The finalists for the forward indie awards have, have already been announced and now, like the Book Life Prize just opened, I think on April first. So, um, the multi-genre awards are on a little bit of a different cycle. Mm. And is there like a fee involved for submitting to awards, or you just get to submit if you had a qualifying book in some way? Or oh no, there are fees. It's definitely it's an expensive habit, and uh, there are a fair number of disreputable awards as well, which is something that you really have to be careful of. You know, sometimes you get these awards runners that are charging $75, $85 per entry, um, but they don't really have much of a reputation in the industry or they don't really offer you, um, they don't really give you much, right? So like the Book Life Prize is put on by Publishers Weekly, right? (laughs) So, you know, that has a little bit um, more credibility than uh, some awards that sound like, you know, they're like the, the indie whatever awards, um, you know, there, there are definitely some legitimate ones, but there are also some other ones that are pretty questionable. I see. Is that, that's all work you do on your own or do you have help from the agent with that as well? Or? All of this I did before, uh, working with my agent. So I actually just started working with my agent in July of this year. Okay. Congrats. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and tell me, I, I wrote down Twitter pitches. So I think I know what you're talking about, but I'm guessing many people don't. Yeah. So I love Twitter pitching. Twitter pitching is um, basically when you have agents and editors who are looking for specific sorts of manuscripts or who acquire for specific genres will step forward to be part of organized events in which on a single day, authors are pitching for whatever they acquire. Hmm. And the way it works is you, the author, put together a tweet-length pitch. Mm-hmm. 
that includes sortable hashtags. So for example, if I was pitching something that was contemporary romance, I would look at the rules of the Twitter pitch because there's always an, an overarching entity that's organizing the pitch. I would look at the um, sort of taxonomy that the organizers put together. So they'll say, oh, if you're writing contemporary romance, it hashtag it CR. And if you're writing rom-com, hashtag it romantic comedy. And if you're writing science fiction fantasy, hashtag it SFF. Mm-hmm. And then on that day, agents and editors would get on and they would filter their feeds by the hashtag for the Twitter pitch event and also the hashtags for whatever genres they're acquiring. And then they would just read through all those tweet length pitches. And the etiquette is if you're an agent and edit- or editor and you heart somebody's pitch, that means that you want to see the manuscript or that you want to see chapters. And the etiquette for people who are not agents and editors is don't heart anybody's pitch, but if you like it, retweet it. Hmm. So that gives agents and editors a chance to see if how many followers are interested in a certain book concept. And then it gives you, the author, the opportunity to see whether an agent or editor hearted your pick. And sometimes if they, your pitch, and sometimes if they do, they'll just private message you and give you instructions for submitting directly to them. And you submit to them. And they know that they were interested in your story concept from your pitch. And it is intended to keep you out of the slush pile and get you sort of a fast track mm-hmm. to, uh, to being seen by them. That's cool. It seems like pretty low effort, low hanging fruit thing to do um, if you're on Twitter. It is. And there are different, so there's something called DV pit. So it's like hashtag DV pit, which is for diverse voices. Mm-hmm. There is uh, pit mad, which runs a few times a year. Um, there's a science fiction and fantasy pitch. I forget the hashtag for that, but most individual genres have some sort of Twitter pitching event and the organizers of the event attract really good, you know, agents and publishers. Um but you also have to check out, you know, anybody who requests to see a manuscript, don't just send them your manuscript, like check them out and make sure that they're legit as well. Yeah. Yeah. So for your pitch, you pitch something that you had already written. Yeah. Usually you need to pitch. You're usually you're pitching something that you have written and that you're ready to send. And in some cases, the agent or editor will ask for a few chapters. And in some cases they'll say, we want the full manuscript. So it's a good idea to have the full manuscript ready for anything that you're pitching. Mm-hmm. So I got um, I got hearts out of that pitch, and the agent who I ended up working with um, read chapters that I sent her after that pitch event, mm. which was, it was pit mad. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Okay, that's interesting. And so here you are. You you're, you're kind of hybrid now. Yes. Um, <laughs> do you do you like? Are you thinking about the? Are you thinking you'll pretty much stay in the trad pub camp, or are you thinking you'll kind of cross promote or have other things come out that you self published? I might do a little bit of both. I mean, and I think it's funny how it all goes back to the fan fiction. But I think I'm somebody who's realized that I'm I'm just always going to write, and mm-hmm. what I personally get out of being part of the writing world is a, I get to write, which I love and which I'll always love. And B, I really care more about being part of the writing community Mm -hmm. and being in communication with fans. Mm. Right. So I love going to book signings and I love going to writers conferences and I love going to retreats with other writers because I've always gotten a huge sense of enjoyment from just Mm -hmm. being part of the community and being a reader and, you know, it was the same way when I was writing fan fiction. I knew all the authors, I knew all the readers. Um, and I really liked being in community with everybody. So for me, part of the trad pub pub move as well is like, I just want to focus on the parts of this life that are richest for me mm. and figuring out what the market wants and, you know, spending a lot of my time on advertising. Those are not, that's not really why I do this. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, I do think that um, trad pub is going to be great for me unless I reach a point at which I can completely and totally 
outsource the business side and have basically have a, some sort of business manager telling me like, you know, who I'm consulting and saying like, Oh, well, you know, I could, I've got, I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking about this. And I'm thinking about this, which one should I write right now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I, I would basically need that person um, to help me manage my indie career. Cause I, I don't think I'm ever going to want to do that. Yeah. It's a lot of time. <laughs> right. And some people love it. I have author yeah. friends who are like, oh, yeah. who are on, on the charts every day, looking at what's trending, yeah. knowing where covers are going and knowing There's great what, data. But, There's great yeah. data out there. If you have yeah. the time and energy, um, <laughs> do you, are you, so for your traditionally published books, are you like, do you have to specify or negotiate in the contract for like, how you capture readers to your own newsletter or that kind of thing? No, um, no, the contracts are mainly just about the book that I'm going to write and, you know, whether I have the sub rights or not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You can put your call to action at the end of the book in your manuscript and they'll publish it. Or like, how does that work for capturing your new fans from, from that new market? So usually it's going to, so typically I think it would mainly be like subscribe to my newsletter, visit my website. Mm -hmm. I don't expect the back matter. So everything that I have out now that's traditionally published, the back matter doesn't contain links to my other books that are not with that publisher. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that there's some promotion of my brand, but um, in my experience, most publishers in romance are putting, are linking to more books yeah. that are published by them. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. So I noticed in your bio, like, right, maybe tying this back around to less business and more why. Um, so you, you write romance and women's fiction and, you know, your bio mentions that you're a feminist and you know, social justice fighter and all those things. So like, what does that mean to you as an author? I, as an author, it means that I don't think that I can decouple who I am from my characters. Mm. So I think the being a feminist and a social justice fighter was more an observation of my work than my work as it naturally came out Mm -hmm. than me saying, I'm going to sit down and write feminist romance, or I'm going to sit down and write social justice romance. Like it's not intention. It's just who I am. And it comes out of every single book. Right. Mm. So like I have a second chance romance where, you know, one way to look at it is, you know, they were going to get married and she left him at the altar and now she's in a sticky situation and she, you know, she needs his help and he's going to come save her. Like, that's a very, that's a very like common romance trope where, you know, you have a breakup, but then they need to get back together. And it's like, well, why did she leave him at the altar? You know, like that's such a common romance thing. But of course, because I wrote it, you know, she is a, she is a former victim of sex trafficking who is, who has gone in to take down a major player who's trafficking young girls. And she decides that she's going to sort of not do it with the help of the vigilante justice organization she works for. She's gone in on her own. And then of course she sends a beacon to her ex because she's in a very sticky situation. So it's like, you know, it's romance and somehow because I'm me, it's about sex trafficking. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of what happens. I, I feel like the um, stories that I think of bring up, bring up the lives of women and have bring, you know, have a lot of vigilante justice and have a lot of social commentary. Cause those are the things that I think about. Yeah. Um, so not, I mean, romance traditionally is not necessarily a, you know, maybe this is just my perception. I've edited a few and seen, but they're not necessarily all feminist, <laughs> I, you know, it, ideals, right? In terms of the storylines and how they work. Um, uh, I don't know if that's something you've seen or not, or thought about like the distinction between feminist and non-feminist romance. Romance novels are more feminist than people think they are. 
Mm-hmm. One way to look at romance is to say, you know, romance is the only genre where it centers on, usually it centers on the heroine and the heroine always gets what she wants. Mm. Women's fiction, arguably, women's fiction is not the same because the woman doesn't always get what she wants. But in romance, it almost she almost always does, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> So there's something inherently feminist about romance because it's about it's about women being victorious in their own lives. Mm. And I think the stereotype is that the victory is walking down the aisle with some man. But actually, in most romance, it really isn't. In most romance, yes, the woman ends up with the love that she wants, but she also usually ends up with a whole bunch of other things that she wants as well. And part of the arc of the story is about her crafting the whole life that she wants, which includes the partner. Yeah. But it, you know, I think there's a way to look at romance that says actually romance is quite feminist. Mm. Um, I, I do agree that the idealization of, you know, it, it's still pretty heteronormative it's still pretty geared towards um, sort of, sort of like marriage and children and nuclear families and mm-hmm. um, monogamy and all of the things that, um, you know, don't necessarily fit. Everybody. They, don't repre- they don't represent everybody's narrative, right? Yeah. yeah. They don't represent everybody's narrative. So I do think that um, romance struggles with that. And my personal opinion is that there are two romance markets. I think that there's a, a romance market that are the people who are on the coasts um, who expect something mm. a little bit different from romance. And I think there are, there is a romance that is, um, you know, does very well in the middle of the country. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a sort of unacknowledged, I think there's an unacknowledged differentiation of romance markets. That's interesting. And like, so how, being an outsider, how would I be able to tell the difference? Um, is there I, like coded, is there coded language or coded like genre names or? I think there is. I, I think that there, I, and I hate this language because I don't think it's exactly right, but mm-hmm. there's definitely romance with more traditional values. Mm-hmm. So chances are if you see a cowboy on the front of a romance novel, chances are if something describes itself as a small town romance, mm-hmm. a lot of times that's the sort of coded language um, for, you know, you're going to get somebody, you're going to get people whose goal is to, sort of be married mm-hmm. and live in a nuclear household. Um, you, whereas, can get that, you can get that in the Manchester ones as well, right? So. Yeah, you can get that in the Manchester ones as well. Um, but I would say, I would say the heroines are different. I mean, something that you, like we have, for example, reverse harem is a really popular mm-hmm genre right now mm-hmm. right and it's like the her- the heroine who's in a reverse harem relationship is in a very different relationship <laughs> than, than the heroine who's um you know in a cowboy relationship okay well just to finish the thought so what are the markers then of the kind of quote quote coastal romance <laughs> i i don't know i i so i think the readers are different but i don't know that it's i don't know that it's figured itself out to that degree Mm. Um, and I don't want to go too far down the road of stereotyping. Um, right. But, you know, if you walk into, yeah, I don't want to go too far down the road of stereotyping, but, um, there yeah, just, is a, just thinking from a marketing perspective, right. And like, cause I think it would be easy to run and go into this genre and write something for the wrong audience well based on chasing sales or trends or that kind of thing if you well, were intimately familiar with the differences i think a lot of the signaling does happen on the cover though and a lot of the signaling happens in um just the trope mm-hmm. so i do think that i think that the small town trope expects that traditional thing and the cowboy expects that traditional thing versus if you have more of a 
you know, rom-com with a really playful cartoony cover with, um, you know, a college educated woman living in the city, that's going to be really different. Mm. But it's also going to be clear from the front that, you know, like there's, there might be like a little cartoony cityscape in the background or something like that. So I do think the covers are doing the signaling of whether you're, um, of what the heroine in particular expects for her life. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. And I imagine you're, you know, you're obviously stepping out of spending so much time advertising and marketing your stuff. Um, but for things like you say, like reverse harem and those sorts of things, right. There is like on like Amazon side or other sites, like it seems like some of these search terms get banned or keywords end up putting you into some sort of jail as well. Like erotica used to do. Yeah. So, and a lot of it has to do with what the bots know and what the bots don't know. Mm. (laughs) So I have a friend who does great writing reverse harem and advertising on it because she uses really coded language on her retail pages. Mm Mm-hmm. And she's careful about what she puts on her cover. Mm-hmm. And there, you know, there are interesting things about that too. I mean, uh, a lot of times, you know, you'll get ads showing female sexuality banned mm-hmm. and ads showing male sexuality not banned. Yes. And the same thing with book covers. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm getting to. Like, <laughs> yeah. it seems really, uh, well, speaking for myself, it's really frustrating to see and. Yeah, there there are ways there are ways around it, but yes, it's it's a very weird thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's very uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I get what's happening and and why. I just I don't I don't get why it's still happening. And oh yeah, pervasively, no. and you know, and there's not organized resistance to that there are wild debates on the author forums where it's like, well, you know, you can show a little bit of bare midriff, but like side boob goes too far. And like, you know, (laughs) people really breaking down, you know, like, well, my, this picture, you know, I'm going to show you a picture of my ad and this ad got through. And then other people, you know, like, oh, well, this ad didn't get through and other people being like, oh, well, this is why that didn't get through. And this is why, I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. And sometimes you can just resubmit your ad and somebody else sees it and arbitrarily decides that it's cool. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so what's ahead for you? What are you excited about? I'm really excited about um, just writing this year in a different way. Mm. So the same book, like every book that's due this year is a book that I've known about for a long time. But one, you know, I mentioned before that I really like writer community and being around people. And this year I'm going to do that again. So last year, like the last writing retreat I went on was like mid-February of 2020, like a month before everything locked down. Yeah. So what I'm really looking forward to actually are getting together with other authors later this year because, you know, we're vaccinated and um, just seeing humans again mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. part of my author life. I just signed up to do a signing in Paris in April of 2022. And I'm wow. really excited about that, partially because Paris, but also because I'm really excited to see fans and sign books and um, do all of those things that I haven't been able to do as part of this author life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I saw that post that looks, that's exciting. <laughs> so something, excited. To, something to look forward to. Yes. You said you, you mentioned writing retreats and things. I was like, ah, oh, sign me up. <laughs> it's, it's so nice. If, if I could just like, you know, just do all my writing at writing retreats, that'd be amazing. Right. And, you know, I've got kids at home, so I don't get any peace and quiet. Yes, I mean, it's yes. very difficult to write. <laughs> and I find that, you know, my biggest, um, the thing that helps me the most for writing retreats is actually the drive, you know, just mm. like driving for a few hours and yeah. getting into a different headspace. And usually, you know, living in California, all my writing retreats are usually someplace that's like very nice and natural, whether it's the beach or whether it's the forest. And just sort of getting out of my space and getting into a different space and getting into that nature energy um, mm-hmm. 
is so beneficial to my writing and to my spirit and all of those things. So I'm, I'm looking forward more to that part of the writing process than I am anything else this year. Yeah. That's great. Well, for people who want to learn more about you, how can they do so? You can go to killbyblades.com. Um, probably the place that I hang out the most is Instagram mm -hmm. and just Instagram and Facebook, just like my everyday Facebook, not even my Killby Blades author page. I just like hang out on Facebook all the time. And this is a total side note, but I'm super, super into K-dramas. <laughs> and I run a K-drama Facebook group. Okay. That is awesome. And that is one reason why if I'm not productive, it's probably because I'm writing a K-drama or probably because I'm reading a K-drama. Well, so for people <laughs> so watching who, a K-drama. <laughs> so for K-drama fans who want who are like, oh my God, I want in this group like now. Like what's the group name? The group name is OSRBC Asian Dramas. OSRBC Asian Dramas. Okay. This like I have no idea what any of that means. But it's awesome. Very exciting. Well, Kilby, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me and taking me on a walk down memory lane. So thank you. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover The Fearless Storyteller podcast. <laughs>